Well, please turn with me to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. We will be looking at the last half of this chapter, verses 18 and following up through to the end of the chapter. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for His help with the text today. Our Lord Jesus, we come to You as people who many times lack understanding and many other times have understanding but choose to disregard it and exchange it for our own truth. And Father, we pray that You would help us with both. Not only our lack of understanding, but the sin of disregarding Your wisdom for our own, which only leads to death. Lord, we pray that You would fill us with the wisdom of Your Word, the redemption that it shows us, and Your plan for this church, for our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I was reading through this, again, this book has been very instructive, I think, for a church, particularly a church like ours that is just starting out. As I was reading through this, it made me want to read about this idea of megachurches. You've all heard the word megachurch, I'm sure. And some of the things that kind of make a megachurch a megachurch other than just people. And one of the single unifying characteristics of these churches are a charismatic founding pastor. pastor who found the church is some sort of usually of uh, very good with people. He's got a good way with people and organization, able to grow the church with his charm and other gifts. Of course, God obviously has a part in that in the growth of these churches, not discounting that at all, but time and time again, these kinds of churches are led by someone who's just got a really good way with people. As success in ministry and numbers of attendance began to be intertwined in evangelical thought over the last 20 or 30 years primarily, these guys who were really good at making these really big churches starting writing, started writing books. Some of the books attempt to sound important, like The Purpose Driven Church sounds important or 40 days of purpose very important some tried to empower the church like your church can grow that's actually the name of a book pretty funny some try to use pop culture language like breakout churches discover how to make the leap sounds fun some try to keep it minimal like simple church or my favorite organic church So, funny, these different things. There's nothing wrong with wanting your church to succeed in this way and grow. There's nothing wrong with writing about that at all. In fact, we should always want more and more folks because that means that the gospel is going forward. More and more people are being instructed and discipled. It's a good thing. However, when it comes to growth, the sake of growth, there may be some problems, especially when it comes to the personality and the dependence upon that personality of a leader. In our text today, Paul is going to part ways with his partners in ministry, Priscilla and Aquila. They're going to go separate ways. For him, it's to fulfill a vow and to continue in faithful ministry of the Lord. And we'll talk about what that means 
For them, it's a loss of an important leader of the church. Someone who will be critical for the continued growth and success of this fledgling New Testament church. Before he leaves, Paul, I think, helps them to gain some in perspective. And I think that this perspective is healthy for us or any church, for that matter, that is in the same state. We are, too, a fledgling church in that way. We want to grow. We want to do it right. So I think Paul has some good news for us here. As we look at the text, we'll consider two main ideas. First, the plans of Priscilla and Aquila for Ephesus, and then the plans of God for Ephesus. And so with that, let's look at the text, Acts chapter 18, starting at verse 18. Let's stand together as we read from God's holy word. Acts 18, starting at verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria, he had his hair cut and for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed in Caesarea, he went up again and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia, Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So a little background first, They're, they leave Corinth, both Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila, they all leave Corinth for the province of Syria. Paul is leaving because he's got some sort of vow to fulfill, we'll talk about in a little bit. On their way, they stop at a place called Syncria. I had to look that one up to see how to pronounce that one. And he, Paul shaves his head, again, because he was under a vow. In order to understand this, we have to know something about in what in Jewish, in the Jewish culture and the Jewish religion was called the Nazarite vow. And this was again part of the Jewish religion. In number six, it talks about this vow and explains the vow. You can read that on your own time. The person who took the vow wasn't to pertain or wasn't to partake of any alcohol, wasn't to go near a dead body, and wasn't to shave their head. Probably familiar from men like Samson in the scriptures, even maybe John the Baptist had took the Nazarite vow, and they took a lifetime Nazarite vow. 
But for others, it was something that they could do for a period of time. They could say, during this time, I'm going to take the Nazarite vow. And it was a, it was a symbolic thing of separating themselves for the Lord for a time. Maybe it was some sort of uh, way to devote themselves to the Lord because of what was going on in their life. There was some sort of something going on. Again, it was voluntary. They were abstaining from physical pleasure with the alcohol. They were abstaining from personal adornment of any kind with the with their uh, the rules on the head. Remaining ceremonially clean at all times, not coming in contact with someone who was dead. And they were even given instructions if someone died near you while you were there on accident. This is how you should do. There was a very, very strict rules concerning this Nazarite vow. Paul took this vow at some point, and when he was at Synchria, he decided it was time to end that vow. And so what they would do is they would shave their head when it was time to end that vow. And they, according to number six, they would have to present that hair that they had just shaved off at the temple which would have been in Jerusalem. So Paul is headed back to Jerusalem via Antioch and some other places, and as we read, via Ephesus as well. Ephesus was the provincial capital of the province of Asia. When we think of Asia, we think of this giant continent. Well, Asia in this time was just the western portion of Turkey, much smaller area. But Ephesus was the crossroads for many places, in the ancient times. It was a major port city, a major place of business and commerce. During this time, the city was at its peak. Now it's just a ruin. During this time of history, there was probably 500,000 people living there. So a major city for this time and place. Among other things, it was known for the Temple of Artemis, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Artemis was the twin sister of the Greek god Apollo. We'll talk more about that next week, about Artemis and the Temple of Artemis, because there's some interesting happenings that go on there in our next uh, in chapter 19. But Paul and his friends saw Ephesus of strategic importance, and so they stopped there on their way home. And so that brings me to the first point: the plans of Priscilla and Aquila for Ephesus. Look with me at verse 19. And they came to Ephesus. And he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. He being Paul, of course, Paul goes into the synagogue and reasons with the Jews. And so they go to Ephesus, he goes to the synagogue, engages the Jews there. Paul has no intention of staying there a long time again. He has to fulfill this Nazarite vow. He has to make it back to Jerusalem within a certain amount of time. And so he... Again, they can't just hop on a plane and go to Jerusalem. He had to get there, I think it was within 30 days. And so there was some some need for haste in his part. And he intended to leave Priscilla and Aquila behind, who, as we know, they were probably willing to go anywhere because they were just traveling people. But he intended for them to stay there and start the Ephesian church. It brings us to 22 and 23. Or... So, yeah, look at me at verse 22 and 23 just concerning Paul's trip. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So 
This tells us that Paul continued to Caesarea, which was the port of Jerusalem, essentially. It says he went up to visit the church. This was a common phrase to denote that he was going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a place of very high elevation. So going up was normal talk for going to Jerusalem. And then going down was leaving Jerusalem. So he went down to Antioch. He completed his vow. And there he traveled throughout Galatia. And this began his third missionary journey. And notice how Priscilla and Aquila react. They didn't take him leaving very well. They wanted him to stay. Look at verse 21. Well, 20. When they asked him to leave, or when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. This could have been difficult, right? They wanted him to stay. Paul. He has the magic touch. Everyone he talks to either loves him or hates him. He is a very dividing person. He has a way with people. Wherever he goes, churches just kind of spring up out of nothing, even out of their enemies. He was a church planner by trade. Where And if he had stayed, you could easily imagine some sort of megachurch springing up in Ephesus, maybe with some kind of swanky name like the Crossroads or... Port Village or something fun like that. But he didn't stay because that's not what Paul does. He's a church planner. Priscilla and Aquila had done ministry with him. They had traveled some with him. They loved their friend and they were going to miss him. Much less Paul's gifts to the church. They were just going to miss him personally. They don't want him to go. They said, please stay. Look what Paul says in 21. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. I will return to you if God wills. Isn't that a little bit frustrating? Don't you hate it when someone says something like that to you? I mean, if we're just being honest. If God wills it, it'll happen. But, but, but yeah, but why can't you just do it? You want something to happen. Maybe you know that a person has it within their power to go ahead and do that. And when you hear, hear well, if it's God's will, it will happen. You just, it's just frustrating. Why does it bother us so much to hear this sort of thing? Because we want to be able to control our own destiny, do we not? We want to have that kind of power. We have no evidence here that Priscilla and Aquila felt this way at all. I'm inserting this feeling into them. But I know that I've had it. I know that you've probably had it. I know that I've been the one that Paul's talking to here, and I've felt that way for sure. Priscilla and Aquila would have sacrificed their lives for the church, and they really have. They moved all over the place already with Paul. The one who has done incredible things concerning the growth of the church was leaving them alone now in a city that probably wasn't going to be too receptive to the church. Paul's already been to the synagogue, and you know that when he goes to the synagogue, they don't welcome him with like punch and cake, usually. They usually welcome him with punches. It's not it's usually not good. I have a second cousin who is considering the mission field uh, as something that she could do. Seriously. She's probably twenty years old. She comes from a very wealthy family, a very well-to-do, well-known family, not only in my community, but even in all the region of Missouri. My, my uncle's a, a state representative, so they're well-known people. She goes to a very good college, 
for nursing. She literally has it made. Everything's just kind of perfect in her family and her life. But she wants to go on the mission field. And her family's having a really hard time with that. Why? Because of the unknown. Because the world is a scary place. Especially for a young, single American woman. Going to a foreign country by herself. Be very scary. Because I will return to you if the Lord wills is only okay if it's someone else's kid. Not our own. Doesn't even have to be someone leaving necessarily. Could be a giant leap of faith, you know, like purchasing a brand new building if you're a small church. Now, this isn't to scare you, but it is scary to kind of think, right? If the Lord wills it, we'll own a building in a few years, and the church is just going to grow because we're going to have this presence here in town. It's going to be a really good thing for us if the Lord wills. And if He doesn't, what then? What if Paul doesn't return to Ephesus? And Priscilla and Aquila are there by themselves for all those years. He does. Sorry to spoil the ending. He does return to Ephesus in the very next chapter. What if my cousin goes off to the mission field and doesn't return? That happens all the time. What if we purchase this building and in 10 years it's still just us meeting together? These are hard questions. And I think Luke helps us with them in this subsequent part of this story. And so let's look at it. And the next, that brings us to the next point, the plans of God for Ephesus. Look at verse 24. So Paul leaves. He's going off doing other things. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. Now Apollos comes to Ephesus. And we hear these good things about him. He just happens to be well-versed in the Old Testament, just like Paul was. He happens to be eloquent and able to crush the Jewish opposition at every turn, just like Paul. What's more, he knew about Jesus. He had heard about Jesus, even all the way down in Alexandria, Egypt. He had heard about Jesus. Alexandria was a pretty well-known place and a place of culture. Sure, he heard about Jesus down there, but he had a limited understanding of what that meant to the New Testament church. For Apollos, we are told that he knew the baptism of John only, which is basically saying that he knew that John had come to prepare the way for the Messiah and probably even that Jesus was the Messiah, but he didn't have a full grasp of the meaning of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. John MacArthur puts it this way in his commentary. He says that Apollos was a redeemed Old Testament Christian. I tend to agree. So what? as he's preaching and as he's teaching there amongst the people, Priscilla and Aquila hear him, you know they just have to be absolutely thrilled that this man randomly, I put randomly in quotes, walks into town and begins preaching right after Paul leaves. They pull him aside. They disciple him. They teach him in the faith the way that Paul had taught them. This is, I think, one of the greatest things that happens in the book of Acts, where you have this man who's on fire for the Lord. He just needs a bit of fine-tuning in his theology. He had the gifts, but he needed to have them honed 
And you have these seasoned veterans like Priscilla and Aquila. They're there to pick him right up and to begin that in his life. And we see he quickly wanted to go to this uh, Achaia, where is the region in southern Greece, where Corinth was. And that's where he ends up. He wanted to go preach there. And they send him. And he goes to Corinth with the gospel. So just think about this for a moment as what's, what's happened right here. Paul leaves and he says, if the Lord wills it, I will return. And he doesn't, at least for a little while. But the Lord immediately sends someone in his place that is capable and even formidable when it comes to the Jews. He becomes a very important part of the early church. We're going to look at that in a moment. So consider this. Paul leaving allowed for this man, Apollos, to come in and many good things begin happening for the church. Not there just in Ephesus, but even in Corinth and and so forth. Had Paul not left, Apollos may not have come. And if he had, he may have been overshadowed. And the church maybe in Ephesus would have come out a different way. We don't know. Priscilla and Aquila definitely would not have had the opportunity to pull this man aside and disciple him. Something else would have happened. The young church in Corinth would not have had Apollos show up with his new training at a critical time in their development so that he could lead them and refute the Jews there. And the stage would not have been set for Paul's return to Ephesus, which begins this whole other saga in the life of the church. It's pretty incredible to see what the Lord has done. Doesn't God always do things that we would never ask or think? Doesn't He do things that we couldn't and wouldn't believe even if we were told? It seems to be His way. You've probably all heard the story of the men Jim Elliott and Nick Saint and others who were missionaries to a tribe called the Wairani tribe in Ecuador. Uh, happened in the 50s and 56, I think, is when it occurred, 1956. These men who been trying to reach out to this tribe and they did and then they landed their plane and then the tribe quickly killed them all they thought they had made a good connection but apparently they hadn't and then several years after that incident a tribesman the tribesman actually who killed Nick Saint who threw the spear that killed this man a man by the name of Minkay baptized Steve Saint Nick's son Who would have written that story any time, ever? This man who killed a missionary is now a missionary. Consider our own beginnings even here at Redeemer. The stirrings of a Reformed church here in Murray, Kentucky. A few interested families. It just so happens that Emily and I and our family are moving back to Murray. And we're interested in having a Reformed church here in Murray. Because there's not even one in this region, hardly. Paducah, that's it. We're interested in that as well. We start meeting for a Bible study with just a few families. We take this giant leap of faith to begin worshiping at the American Legion with the artillery out front. Just a couple of us. Now we're meeting in a place that's called the Wesley Foundation. That's supposed to not be reformed. But several of the board members here are. 
And they're excited about us being here as well. And we're purchasing a building that just happens to be almost exactly in the geographic center where most of our families live, right down the road from where Emily and I work. Who would have written that story? Not me. I'm too cynical. I would never have done that. If the Lord wills, strange things happen. They're not strange to Him. He's planned them from the foundations of the earth. Things that we wouldn't believe even if we were told. Brothers and sisters, what are we trusting in? Who are we trusting in? Are we trusting in our own abilities to make things happen? Don't trust in me. I don't believe any of this stuff sometimes. I couldn't. I would have said none of this would have happened. But it did. It happened because the Lord is good. He is good. Are we excited to see what the Lord wills for Redeemer Community Church? Some pretty incredible things happened in Corinth through the ministry of Apollos. Even so much so that there were divisions in that church. Who should we follow? We're really excited about Apollos. He's done some pretty incredible things. But we love Paul. Should we follow him? Or even this guy Peter that we've never met, but we've heard of. he's a pretty cool dude too. Who should we follow? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul straightens us out. I think it's fascinating. Many times looking back, we can see the hand of God at work. And that's what Paul does here for them. 1 Corinthians 3, starting at verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. What's Paul saying here? He was there in Corinth, wasn't he, for just a short time, 18 months or so. It says he planted the seeds. Apollos is now there watering the seeds, teaching the church, leading the church. But Jesus Christ alone makes it happen. If the, if the Lord wills, it will grow. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the builder of his church. He is the author of the new life that we have in him. And what does Paul make sure that we understand? It isn't anyone or anything that makes this happen, but it's the sure foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ from which everything upon the church is built. If we are trusting in anything to grow this church, then those things will go away. Those church growth books may have some merit, 
But if they don't say that the most important thing is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then they say absolutely nothing at all. Jesus Christ died so that his people, the church, would have everlasting life. And it is through that message that he continues to call his people to himself. Nothing else. He uses the plain and simple preaching of the gospel to see that happen. That's why when Paul left, he knew things would be fine. But he left it in the hands of folks who knew the gospel and would preach it and did so. And who would disciple others to do so. And we see that in their ministry. So in conclusion, when we trust in our own plans, we shouldn't be surprised when we see them come to folly. When we trust that the Lord has His plans, we will stand amazed at what He is doing and what He has done. We'll tell stories that no one will believe because the Lord is so good that we couldn't even imagine. Let us be a people who take a step of faith and trust that the Lord is taking care of His church, even when it seems hard. Let us be people who pray expecting the Lord to do His will, and His will is that He would be glorified. Let us be people who bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we so many times look at our circumstances, we look at the obstacles in front of us, and we can't even imagine what you could do. And really, we doubt that you could do anything. And so, Lord, please forgive us of that sin, because you are more than capable to do as you please. You have demonstrated that in our own lives. You have demonstrated that in the life of this church, in the people that we know, in what you've done in this community. And so, Lord, we pray expecting you to continue to do more. We know that it is your will to glorify your name. And we pray that you do that through your people here at Redeemer Community Church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.